Well, good morning and welcome to the last class of 2020. Maybe in your mind you're going, yes, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, maybe not just associated with the, the year. But uh, today we're going to jump into uh, 2 Samuel 6. And in fact, I think what we'll do is just go ahead and jump right into that. And then we'll talk a little bit about how we got there. So who would like to read 2 Samuel first? I'll no, start thank off. you, sir. Very good. It's the only time. <laughs> all right. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bel Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were dri driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand out of the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because of the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all the, that belongs to him because of the ark of the, of the God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, fattened a, and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, And it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Thank you. So... Before I get your reaction, let's talk a little bit about how we got here. So as you remember from last week, chapters uh, 4 and 5, you remember that David has now consolidated his power on the entire region of Israel. And so here again is my, my map of, of Canaan, or what we would call the modern-day country of Israel. 
Mediterranean Sea, this is the land. So here is where the 12 tribes of Israel are scattered, in a sense. Um, <clears throat> the different tribes live in different regions around this area here. And as you recall from uh, the first part of, of 2 Samuel, <coughs> excuse me, the, the first anointed king of Israel, who is who? Saul. Saul, Saul has died. <coughs> excuse me while I choke to death on my own spit. <coughs> excuse me. So Saul has died, but that has left a power vacuum. And as we recall from the first part of 2 Samuel, uh, David, who was the anointed um, successor to Saul, did not immediately take power over the entire country. In fact, what ended up happening was there was a civil war, which often happens not just in antiquity, but in the modern era when there is a uh, leadership uh, change and uh, suddenly it's up in the air who is going to be ruling the entire country. Now, as you recall from 1 Samuel, there were hints, there were clues that even when Saul came to power, there was a division in this land between the so-called north and the south, or the so-called um, tribes of Israel and the tribes of Judah. So again, it's confusing, but there are 12 tribes. <clears throat> the northern 10 tribes are called Israel. But uh, in, in our modern sense, we consider all 12 tribes to be the tribes of Israel, and that's how God saw it, and that's how Jacob saw it. The southern two tribes were Judah and Benjamin. Even in 1 Samuel, there is clues that there, has, there is a division of the people already in place, that um, the people of Judah are specifically called out from time to time, especially when they're supporting David. When we get into 2 Samuel, Saul has died, and immediately... One of the surviving sons of Saul, Ishbosheth, has been put on the quote throne as the successor, as you might rightfully expect a human to do, right? So in antiquity, if you were the relation of the king, his son, uh, obviously first, you would be next in line to rule as king of that country. Well, as we remember, Saul died on the battlefield, as did his sons, but it seems as though not all of his sons were killed. Ishbosheth, at least, who was probably a young and weak person, a, a weak king, comes to power with a military general, uh, Abner, controlling him, essentially. Uh, Abner is in charge of the military, and he's a very strong personality, and, and so Ishbosheth is really just a puppet king while Abner is pulling the strings. Well, as you might imagine, the people of Judah would have nothing to do with that. So as soon as Saul dies, the people of Judah anoint human anoint David as their king. But now you've got two kings. You've got Ishbosheth in the north and you've got David in the south. And there is a civil war that breaks out between these people. Um, initially, it's just uh, a small group of men that come together and, and just fight hand to hand, but that breaks out into armed conflict between um, both nations. <clears throat> and what we see over the past couple of chapters is the slow march towards unification. Meaning, uh, first, Abner is killed. Uh, and David is not happy about this. And then Ishbosheth is killed uh, in, a, in a very uh, treacherous move where some, some uh, uh, folks, some fellows, uh, break into his house in the middle of the day and stab him in the stomach and he dies. <clears throat> With Ishbosheth out of the way and no clear successor left for Saul, David then takes that opportunity to consolidate his power and he becomes the now human anointed king of all 12 tribes of Israel. He was already the anointed king of Israel by God's standards, and that's the one that counts. But now, after seven and a half years um, in Hebron, ruling just Judah, 
Now he is, in fact, the king of all of Israel, all 12 tribes. And now his next move is to take Jerusalem. And we, we read that last time. Jerusalem, okay, let me just show you real quick here. So here's Jerusalem, which at the time is called Jabus. Just south of this is Hebron. Now, Hebron is great if you want to rule Judah, because this is right in the center of Judah territory. And Benjamin, as we recall, is a very tiny sliver of territory that's just on the cusp of Judah. So really, Hebron is a perfect place if you're going to be the king of Judah. It is a terrible place if you want to be the king of all 12 tribes. Why? Because 90% of your population is to the north of Hebron. What does that mean? Well, it's not like the modern era, where if you are the president of the United States, you can rule from Washington, D.C., which is essentially almost on the east coast of the United States. 95% of the U.S. population, give or take, is west of there. But it doesn't matter, because we live in the modern age, the information age, and you can rule through things like the media, the internet, <coughs> newspapers, television, and so forth. It doesn't really matter where you're located as much, as long as you're in the country somewhere. <coughs> In antiquity, that was not the case. Why? Well, they don't have any of the things I just mentioned. In order to rule effectively, you have to physically be present amongst your people. They have to see you. They have to hear you. And they have to hear the news about what's going on. They had to see your military, right? Now, if you don't ever see the king, and you don't ever see the troops, what do you start to think? You're on your own. You're on your own. Well, I'm on my own. I haven't seen the king. I pay taxes. These guys come along every year and take some of my stuff. But what do I get out of it? Nothing. Well, the Edomites are right here. The Amalekites are down here. Um, there's a lot of other... Egypt is right on our doorstep. Well, they seem a lot more powerful. I see a lot more of them than I see of my king. So what's going to end up happening? Up here, it's Syria. Syria is a very powerful nation in this period. If you are not physically located... In a, in a position that's central to your country at the time, you run into a lot of problems. Is that when they did what was right in their own eyes? I think they did that for the, all of the Old Testament. <laughs> and the New Testament. And Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Application. I didn't interrupt you. This morning. Yeah. And today. This morning. Yeah. Yep. Today, tomorrow, this and morning. it always will be. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, the other thing I want to point out here is what Jerusalem is strategically. Jerusalem, as it turns out, is in a perfect strategic location because it is on the top of essentially a mountain-like plateau that rises up to Jerusalem, to the top of the mountain, which we call Mount Zion, which is where the, the Temple of Solomon will end up being built. And then it falls away into these great valleys, the Valley of Hinnom on the south, and the, um, uh, oh, what's the valley on the right? Uh, uh, Kidron Valley on the right, or the east. This is a perfect strategic location, why? Because if you have your little city on top of this hill, it is super hard to take it by force. You would have to, if you were an approaching army and there were walls around the city, you would have to come up with, and I have not been there, but just reading and looking at maps and this sort of thing, you would have to ascend a valley of 40 or 50 feet at least, almost straight up, and then you would have a wall to the city that you would have to rise another 40 feet maybe to take the city. That's super hard to do. Really, the only way to take the city is to come from the north. The north is where, in, in a sense, <clears throat> there is a straight shot in Jerusalem. And in fact, this is exactly how the Babylonians in 586 and the Romans in 70 AD take the city. They came from the north because that was the only, really the easiest and only way to take the city. So you have this great central location. You have an excellent strategic location that's very hard to take by another military uh, assault force. 
And so David decides to take Jerusalem, which at the time is called Jabus, because it is inhabited by these people called Jebusites, and he takes it. And that happened right before this chapter. And now he has Jerusalem, and he decides to make that his capital. Well, David is a religious man, as we well know and we continue to read about. And there is one artifact, in fact, that is the most important religious artifact to the Jews of the time, and that is what? There is no, there is no more significant object of, of veneration and of, and, of, and of worship to some degree and honor than the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Why is the Ark important to the Jews? Brought them victory in the past. Yeah. So it has, it has association with victory, victory militarily. Why else? It has the uh, Ten Commandments. Okay. Yep. To Moses, it has the uh, what? What are the Ten Commandments, Roger? Huh? What are they? What What does that mean to someone who might not know what the Ten Commandments are? It's a list of uh, basic rules to follow if you want. Okay. It was a. Uh, it's how God separated His people from everybody else. You're all right. You're all right. What else? What else do the Ten Commandments represent? The C word. The covenant between God and me. This is really important. There are seven covenants of God in the Old Testament. One of the biggest is the Mosaic covenant that God makes with his people. God says, this is a covenant. A covenant is another word for contract um, or testament, which is a weird English way of saying it, which is why we have the Old and New Testaments, which is really a bad way of saying the Old and New Covenants. They represent a contract, a binding contract between the God of the universe and the human beings who live on it. Now, all of what you just said was true. This ark was built in the time of Moses to house that covenant. And again, we make make, uh, sense of the fact that there were two tablets. It seems as though these were two copies because in antiquity, a suzerain and a vassal would make a covenant, but then because you didn't have the internet, you would have to make a copy of the covenant. So I take my copy and he takes his copy and they say the exact same thing. So these are probably copies of each other of the covenant that God made with Israel. They put it inside, <coughs> which they look like loaf bre- bread loaves. I don't know why. Uh, they look <laughs> like French bread. Put it inside of this ark, but then there was something even more magnificent about what this ark represented. And what was that? Presence of God. Yes! This is footstool. Yes. This was literally the footstool of God. Now, there is no mistake why the covenant was put into this footstool. Why? The covenant represents the legal way of saying, I have a binding contract between God and man. The ark is the physical representation of that contract. Why? Because God and man come together in the same place. God and his majesty actually physically rest at the top of the ark, and if you want to think of it, his feet rest on this so-called footstool. God rests between the cherubim, these so-called angelic beings. We're not really sure what they mean exactly. Angel is probably too weak of a term. These beings, these, these spiritual beings, he rests between them. During the period of the judges, ever since the Exodus, when it is built, and through the period of the judges, and probably all the way to the Babylonian exile, God's presence rests above this, this ark. Now, if all, after all of what I have just told you is true, what is that going to tell you about how God reveres the ark 
and how man should revere the ark. Yeah. Is this just something that's interesting to know about? It's holy, it's sacred. Honored, it's sacred. It's you know, and when we lose sight of the what this word sacred means in our society today, we really don't understand it. I don't think. I don't think I understand it. Something to be revered, to be honored. When you revere or honor something, you treat it well, <laughs> right? You tell your kids, treat your stuff well, right? Don't just uh, throw it on the ground or step on it or leave it for the vacuum. <clears throat> well, the people of Israel were expected to do the same thing with this ark in which the presence of God would rest. Remember, there's a reason why people burned incense during the sacrifices and during the Day of Atonement when the, when the tabernacle and then the temple were built. Why? Because the, the incense was supposed to kind of cloud the top of the ark so you couldn't see God's face or you would die. <laughs> and people didn't want to die. And that's how powerful the ark was. Very powerful. But again, as I made comment in 1 Samuel, the ark has no power in itself. It is not a magical object. It represents something. God's presence is what's powerful there, not the ark itself. So tell me what has just happened in chapter 6. And, and let me just, and, and where we're at, after what is essentially a whirlwind tour of the region of Israel by the ark over a, about a hundred year period, um, the ark first in Shiloh, which is somewhere around here, gets taken to a battlefield, captured by the Philistines, taken from town to town, ends up in Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where the, the story of Saul begins. And now it's been there for, for many decades. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 6. Now tell me what your reaction is to chapter 6. What did you get out of this? I think David reacted kind of the way we would all react. It seems kind of severe that just yeah. be like, it seems like he was trying to do something noble, this guy, you know, because he thought the ark was going to fall and the ark was precious to him. So he wanted to touch it and make sure that it didn't fall off the cart. But God, like it's confusing to David and I think to us sort of. But know. it wasn't supposed to be on the cart, was it? No, this is exactly it. Now David should have known his scripture. <laughs> And if you read Exodus 25 and Numbers 7, you will know exactly why this was a bad idea to begin with. Why? What was the rules around moving the ark? Which it was designed to be mobile. As you'll see here, I have drawn it with exactly what was built. Two poles, and, and I'll just say this. I make a big deal about the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love that movie. Historically, it's a little inaccurate. Of course it is, because it's a movie. However... <laughs> Uh, right, exactly. It is historically accurate because the Nazis never got it. Um, but aside from that fact, I think the structure of the Ark, compared with what I read in the scriptures, is really close to what I think the actual Ark looked like. And in that is these two big poles that come out on either side. What were they meant for? Were they meant to keep you away as a guardrail? To carry. No, to carry. This is exactly it. The Ark was meant to be carried. And who was supposed to carry the Ark? Greece. What kind of priests? Levites? Specific yes. Levites, though. Yes. Very specific people were told by God in the Old Testament, these are the people who are allowed to carry the ark. You should not move it in any other way. And there's also the Aaron's budding staff was supposed to be in there, too. That's another thing. What's the third? Manna. There's a jar of manna. Yeah, manna. So we should know better. We should know better, right? And now, again, this is not the first time it's been taken by a cart either. 
what happens? It's on a cart, and, and maybe for this very reason, God's like, my footstool is not supposed to be stuck on an ox cart. My, my, my ark is holy and secret and precious. It's precious. Would you stick, would you stick your newborn baby on the back of an ox cart? <laughs> I wouldn't. I would hold my baby. I would carry my baby. I wouldn't stick it on the back of a cart for God knows whatever is going to happen to it. And thus, this, this passage happens. And I guess it kind of comes to this point, which is when you know better and you know what the right answer is and you don't follow it, is it really us who should be like confused as to why things went so horribly wrong? <laughs> should we really be shocked? Yeah, usually justify things. Yeah. And so what they're, looks like what they're doing, I don't know how far they were going yeah. with it, mm-hmm. but do you want to carry this thing for mm. 10 miles, 20 miles walking? Yeah. I mean, that's what they had to do, but they didn't carry that's it. Exactly, yes. That's exactly, and, and that's exa- I believe, Tim, you're right. They're like, dude, I want to carry it, lest we forget how far the ark has come. Yeah. <laughs> From literally, probably, I don't know if it's a thousand miles, it was several hundred miles through the desert over 40 years, brought all the way around to here. Um, and then brought into Shiloh. So you're right. But now in their minds, they're like, oh, it's a long way. I can't go that far. I carried a casket 20 feet and about died carrying that. So I don't, not comparing that casket to a right. Ark of the Covenant, but I think it was heavy. It's heavy. See, in the military, if we make a mistake like that, we had to stop, look at our checklist again. So I wonder mm-hmm. if they made a checklist. <laughs> Let's make sure we get this right. Okay, we got four Levites. <laughs> Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, the chair, like, it's made of acacia wood covered in gold, mm-hmm. but then the angels are solid, the lid is solid gold. So this is not light. This so, is probably heavier than a casket <laughs> with a large person in it, right? It's not mm-hmm. light, yeah. Why did they take it to a man from Gath? Like, wouldn't you want it at an Israelite's house, mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. take it to a guy from Gath? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What does that tell you? What do you interpret from that? They were, they were really scared. They just, well, let's keep it over here. And if he dies, then, nah. Ah, okay. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, he's blessing him? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> we can huh? figure this let's thing out. Let's go get it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> What else? Seems like David is taking on the um, the role of high priest instead ah. of the high priest. Yes. Because he's wearing the ephod. Yes. And he's sacrificing, and yep. he's handing out blessings and yeah. We really need to be careful of our roles here, and I was going to talk about this in relation to something else. Let's talk about the roles here. So first, we have the king, <coughs> and these are defined. The Old Testament defines the roles and expectations for these different roles. The king, also called the Son of God, and I know that might rub you the wrong way, but that's what he was called. He was called the Son of God, the Anointed One of God. What was he expected to do? What was the role of king in Israel? To rule over the people. Rule the people. To, To be representative for God. Represent, okay, to represent God to the people. What else? What was what was one of the big reasons why Israel wanted a king in the first place? Uh, to be like all the other nations. 
And why? What was what was the benefit of the king there? Basically being the military leader. So this is number one. They wanted a military leader. That was the number one. And this is what got the Jews into so much trouble in the first century AD. Because they could not wrap their heads around the fact that Jesus was not that king yet. He wasn't their military leader yet. What else? What what were all the benefits that came with having a king? Like you said about the other nations have them. What are the other aspects? Military? Land. Land? Okay. They kind of know what to expect. Like if okay. there is some sort of threat, they have someone who goes and takes care of it. They don't have to like try and raise people to help them on their own. Right. They just, it's kind of like they have more stability. Yeah, created some order. There's order, there's stability. There's a standing army. Economically, they thought the king would help to organize the economy. They, they would see the king as a um, ambassador to other nations. So this would be the person who would deal with the other countries. Um, there was a bureaucracy associated with the king that ran the country. So collected taxes, um, uh, conscripted people into the army, uh, had public works projects, handed out raisin loaf cakes. Pay off their, <laughs> pay off their student loans. I think that's the next chapter. Oh, that's right. I think I'm, that's what's missing from mine, I think. I, it might have fallen out. Um, <clears throat> that's the role of the king. There's another word I heard here. The role of priest. What was this person's role? To intercede. So this person intercedes. And, and, and not just intercedes. And what do you mean by that? Intercede for what? Uh, prayer. They, they praise for the people. They intercede. Okay. Stay in between. Yep. <clears throat> He's also in charge of making sure that they have all the festivals, make sure that they do all the sacrifices that need to happen. Yep. Because they <clears throat> sacrifice a certain amount of things every day and specific things. I'm going to call it ritual, and I know that has a negative connotation in today's sense, but that's what it was. The, the priest was in charge of leading the rituals, the sacrifices, the feasts. Um, maintaining the what is first the tabernacle and the running of the tabernacle. So this is the religious center. Um, Settle disputes. Settle disputes. I like this is it. This is it. Um, so for priests, are we also discuss or put Levites in that category as well, or is that another category? The Levites were a subclass of the priest. Were they the, the ones class. in charge of the tabernacle and carrying mm-hmm. the stuff? Mm-hmm. They're the ones actually carrying the poles and in charge of the ark and everything else, the articles. It, it, it kind of, yes. Yes and no. Yes. I'll say yes for now because it changes a little bit after David. Um, so these people were really running the religion of the country. This guy was running the, the country, the bureaucracy of the country. This person was running the religion of the country. There is a third class here, folks. This is an important one, the prophet. Who is the prophet, and what is their role? To warn people. It's like they're the mouthpiece of God. That I, could, I probably couldn't have said it better. I think this is exactly it, in a way. The mouthpiece of God. I think that is really it. Um, you know, you, you talk about the angel. The role of angel in the spiritual realm is kind of like the prophet in the human realm. The prophet receives and disseminates revelation from God. Um, this is a class of people. They're each classes, and you have to remember, we, you know, in America, the class structure kind of breaks down a little bit compared to other countries. Certainly in the past, 
there was a very rigid class structure. Um, <clears throat> the priests were probably responsible for writing, I don't know, 90% of the, of the Old Testament. The priestly class was well-educated. They, um, they knew Hebrew. They knew uh, other languages as well. They knew the history. They were very um, focused on copying the, the ancient manuscripts and making sure that we have them today. If it wasn't for the priestly class of the Hebrews, we wouldn't even have the Old Testament for, for a large part. The prophet is something else. The prophet is kind of like the balance of power here amongst the three <laughs> you know, uh, different houses. The prophet was more of a wild card person called upon by God. And, and again, the classes here sometimes overlapped a little bit. You could have a priest that was also a prophet. It wasn't very common. Um, Ezekiel is a good example of a priest who was also a prophet. Um, but then you have prophets that weren't really priests at all. Uh, many of the minor prophets of the Old Testament were not priests, but they were prophets. <clears throat> who does God speak to primarily in the Old Testament? Well, I think he wants to speak to everyone, but when the king or the priests or whoever don't listen, then he raises up a prophet to tell them what's the truth. You know, like he spoke to David and David obeyed him and listened to him until, I mean, then there was a time when, and he even talked to Saul. He like, you know, told Saul what he wanted him to do. And then when Saul didn't do it, then along came Samuel, the prophet, to tell them, like, hey, Saul, you messed up. You didn't do what God wanted you to do. And Nathan comes to David to tell him that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. So, And I'm going to say we have this fourth class, which I don't call its own class because it's really hard to pigeonhole it into one. I'm going to call it the judge, the leader. In Hebrew, it's leader. We call it judge. This is the period of the judges. Judges tended to be quasi-multi-class people. Samuel, the, the last judge of Israel, what would you classify him as here? Well, he was a priest, but he was also a prophet, no. you know? I wouldn't say prophet, but I'd say priest. He also led the military. I mean, he didn't lead them on the battlefield, but he instructed the military. <clears throat> as a kind of king. So this is a perfect example of a person who kind of fit all three. Samuel was in some ways all three here. He kind of had the cachet of the king without being a king. Yeah, exactly, he was, <laughs> was kingish. Okay, I just wanted to draw that out because it really is important for chapter seven as we're gonna get, uh, get into here. This idea of who God is talking to, and I really want you to think about this. You know, It's important to think about this in the Old Testament sense, in the Israeli sense. Because as we come into the period of the New Covenant, which is Jesus Christ and the, the modern era, I would call it, what happened to all of this? What happened to all of this? Well, the power got out of balance. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Everybody, all of them, were trying to raise up to be the top dog. Mm -hmm. And so what did God do about that? What did God do here? Are we to the right or before the right? Yeah, as we get towards the right, as we move, you know, when the Assyrians came and destroyed Israel, and when the Babylonians came and destroyed Judah, by the time of Christ, this has all gotten completely, basically demolished. Okay? Um, there really is no more prophets. There's no priests. There was, again, in the sense that during the, during the Hasmonean age, 
when the Jews had some kind of self, semi-self-autonomous rule, they started having high priests again. But they did not have this, this role right here. Who is this role today for us as Christians and for the Jews who accept Jesus as their Savior? Who is this role? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Will there ever be another one? <laughs> this is it. It stops with him. It stops with him. <clears throat> He's all for He's all of them. Now, this is exactly what I'm coming to. The rules and roles that were separate in the past have now been coalesced into one person. One person. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the king. He is, he is, our, he is our religious king, and when he returns on Judgment Day, he will also be a military king. He's also a prophet. Why? Because a prophet does what? Says what God wants the idea of communion, the, the sacraments, the Eucharist. When we go into the, into the sanctuary, that I still call the sanctuary, and you have the juice and you have the wafer, you are, you are participating in an act of what we call communion. Now, you see that, and many people see that as communion like Jesus had with his <clears throat> disciples. You might see that as communion with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's all true, but at the end of the day, Communion, taking the, the sacraments, is representing your communion with God. That is the number one reason why you do it. You do it to remember that you have been reconciled to God through one person who can only be one person, the, the best prophet of all. <laughs> the best prophet of all. Because he has reconciled you. He is the true mouthpiece of God. And now, you have a piece of God living within you, which we call what as Christians? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit, an aspect of God that is also all three here. So we have the best of all of this. It's led to this today. King, priest, prophet, judge, all residing within us, reconciling ourselves with God every day, every hour that we call communion. But in the past, it wasn't like that. And so you see these weird things where these people come up and God doesn't talk necessarily directly to people. He sometimes do it through an intermediary. So let's talk about that in chapter 7 because this is really important what we're leading to. Did you have a question? Well, what do you think about David taking on the role of priest there yeah? in 6? Was that his divinely appointed role? I was going to ask that. Like, Looking back in his history, does he have that in his lineage to be, to, to wear the ephod, to... Uh, I mean, he ate the showbread, and he didn't get punished for it, so maybe there's something in his uh, lineage that says it's okay, I guess. Huh? And he didn't seem to get in trouble for it, so it's interesting. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer that will make you happy, because I think what you'll find in the Old Testament is God, because he knows that humans need structure and order and he has a plan for us, sets out, here are the rules. How many times are those rules violated by human beings? About a billion. How many times does God reconcile us through his mercy and grace to fix that even though we did that? About a billion. <laughs> Plus one. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, he's acting as the priest here, but that's not going to last. God's going to make it very clear that that's not supposed to continue. And he wants that separation of duty. And he even wanted to build the temple, and God said, mm. and We're about to talk about that. Let's just get into 7 to help answer that question. Samuel chapter 7, the whole thing. It's uh, a little beefy, but you know, it's all good. 
29. Who would like to read that for me? I'll read it. King David was living in his palace, and the Lord had given him peace from all his enemies around him. Then David said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I am living in a palace made of cedar wood, but the ark of God is in a tent. So Nathan said to the king, Go and do what you really want to do, because the Lord is with you. But that night the Lord spoke his word to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Will you build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until now, I have not lived in a house. I have been moving around all this time with a tent as my home. As I have moved with the Israelites, I have never said to the tribes whom I commanded to take care of my people Israel, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? You must tell my servant David, This is what the Lord All-Powerful says. I took you from the pasture and from tending the sheep and made you leader of my people Israel. I have been with you everywhere you have gone, and I have defeated your enemies for you. I will make you as famous as any of the great people on the earth. Also, I will choose a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they can live in their own homes. They will not be bothered anymore. Wicked people will no longer bother them as they have in the past, when I chose judges for my people Israel. But I will give you peace from all your enemies. I will also tell you that I will make your descendants kings of Israel after you. When you die and join your ancestors, I will make one of your sons the next king, and I will set up his kingdom. He will build a house for me, and I will let his kingdom rule always. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he sins, I will use other people to punish him. They will be my whips. I took away my love from Saul, whom I removed before you, but I will never stop loving your son. But your family and your kingdom will continue always before me. Your throne will last forever. David or Nathan told David everything God had said in this vision. Mm-hmm. Then the King David <clears throat> then King David went in and sat in front of the Lord. David said, "Lord God, who am I? What is my family? Why did you bring me to this point? But even this is not enough for you, Lord God. You have also made promises about my future family. This is not normal, Lord God. What more can I say to you, Lord God, since you know me, your servant so well?" You have done this great thing because you said you would and because you wanted to, and you have let me know about it. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God except you. We have heard this all ourselves. There is no nation like your people, Israel. They are the only people on earth that God chose to be his own. You made your name well known. You did great and wonderful miracles for them. You went ahead of them and forced other nations and their gods out of this land. You freed your people from slavery in Egypt. You made the people of Israel your very own people forever, and Lord, you are their God. Now, Lord God, keep the promise forever that you have made about my family and me, your servant. Do what you have said. Then you will be honored always, and people will always say, The Lord God, the Lord all-powerful, is God over Israel, and the family of your servant David will continue before you. Lord all-powerful, the great God of Israel, you have said to me, I will make your family great. So I, your servant, am brave enough to pray to you. Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised these good things to me, your servant. Please bless my family. Let it continue before you always. Lord God, you have said so. With your blessing, let my family always be blessed. Thank you. Right here, we have what is starting to be the answer to your question about why was it okay that David was the priest, or, or maybe why was God talking directly to him? If you read, if you read from Nathan himself, so, so, so David has this in mind of what he wants to do. What does David want to do here? Build a temple. He wants to build a temple. Why would he want to build a temple? This is... Because he, just, 
to express his love for God. Okay. Why else? Other nations, yeah. every other nation has a actual, not a tent for their, you know, for Baal or Astra or any other god you can imagine, there's a temple for them. And in fact, archaeology shows us that the temple that the Israelites will eventually build is almost a carbon copy of one that was built for Baal in Syria of the time. There were temples to Baal, physical stone and wood buildings built at the time meant to honor their gods. What, what did the function of that temple do? for that society. It was the center. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by center? It was the center of the society. It's their oh. culture. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's representative of their, the people. And how did that help the society? And more specifically, how did that help the people at the top of that society? It's like a focal point. For yeah. It rallied everybody. It, yeah. They had a, everybody had the same focus, <laughs> the same place to go to. Mm -hmm. um, Kept their fears and their hopes. Elevated. I like that. Is like that where that. he wants to put the Ark of the Covenant? For yeah. Yes. Forever, right? Okay. Built the temple and then mm -hmm. it's... This is where God is. When Herod in the, the, the <clears throat> end of the first century BC, a, a couple decades before Christ is, is born, decides to rebuild Solomon's temple. Um, it was already there from the post-exile, but it was, a, it was kind of a crummy... Um, replica of Solomon's temple, small and insignificant. What did Herod end up doing with the temple in Jerusalem of the time over the next 20 or 30 years? He made it the most magnificent temple that had ever been built. Did he do it for God? No. Why do people build giant temples? For themselves. So I think you have to remember here that while you may think that David's motives are pure, and they might be to some extent, what's the other message he wants to send by building this gigantic temple? Look at us. I think or look, at look at me, look at us. We're pretty darn cool. Well, and I think, I mean, he says, like, why am I living in this really <clears throat> nice palace and God's living in a tent? Like, now that I have the ark, I, I like, he's realizing the disparity yeah. of, like... Who built that palace for him? Hiram of Tyre. And <laughs> I think you have to remember David and Solomon <clears throat> both had a flaw. And that is that they wanted magnificent palaces and temples to show how cool they were. I want you to, to think about when Solomon's temple is built, and, and we won't talk about it here. We'll t you know, when we get to kings, we, we'll talk about it. Um, Solomon will build a magnificent temple to God. He will also build for himself a magnificent new palace for his own residence. Which one took longer to build? His own palace. I think you have to remember... That while they have good intentions, sometimes God knows their heart, and He knows exactly what's going on here. Well, I'm wondering also, when we're, as we're reading this, and as what you said before, um, the reason why God maybe didn't have a problem with Him, what He did, is because looking into the future of who Christ is and what what lineage that Christ came from through David, yeah, and Christ is the King, Priest, Prophet, and Judge, and maybe that's why He was able to where the ephod and mm -hmm. worship and lead the... Um, I'm okay the with that. I'm maybe. okay with that. Mm -hmm. That, you know, but when I it think came that, to the temple, God said, no. But now, you, now you're seeing the reason why there's checks and balances in the Old Testament. So now David wants to build the temple and he sees no problem with it. And he goes to Nathan, a man who has been brought up to be a prophet. And what does Nathan say in verse 3? Do what you want to do because the Lord's with you. But, dot, 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 what happens that night? Yeah, God says that's wrong. Uh, Nathan, shut up. 
<laughs> that's not true. And but I think that if yeah. his, I mean, I get he probably part of him probably did want to be like everyone else yeah. and whatever. But I don't think his his uh, intentions are are as bad as maybe you think because other God then in the dream tells him like, hey. I'm going to make your kingdom rule for all time. I mean, that's pretty... That's why why is he trying news. to do there? So then, <laughs> then I say, what is God trying to make a point to David? Because I still, I still hold to my, my theory, my hypothesis, that David has the wrong idea of what he's trying to do here. David is trying to build a physical temple to, to show the physical superiority of, of, the, of Yahweh and of the Israelites over the world. God is saying, no, I don't want you to build a physical house. You have this all wrong, David. I want you to build what? I'm going to build for you something. Kingdom. A kingdom based on what kind of house? House made without hands. When, when I say the king rules the house of Lancaster, the house of York, or the house of Tudor, what do I mean by that? It's a dynasty. A lineage. A lineage. God is saying, you've got it all wrong, David. And I want to teach you a lesson for that. I want to build you a house. You are the house. And your lineage, your dynasty, your descendants from your own body. And that's why I said what I said about why God, I don't think, punished him because of no. that. Because his kingdom did last, is last forever through no. Christ. Not through his physical sons. Exactly. But through, well, well I guess, yeah, both. through Christ. Both. It's both. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we can argue all day long. The answer is probably we're both right. Uh, and we're both wrong. The idea is that David was a flawed human who had his own issues, but I think he had flaws that God wanted to reveal himself through. And this gets at, why are you flawed? <laughs> why are you flawed? Because God wants to reveal himself through you and his truth. And the only way to do that is through our own inadequacies. God chose Solomon, or did, said David couldn't build it because David had killed. And so therefore his son could only build it because he had not. Solomon, there was no war during Solomon's reign. But David had killed, he went to battle. Mm -hmm. And God said no. Mm -hmm. For that reason. That was the reason God goes. That's one of them. You have shed too much blood. Yep. You have shed too much blood to build my house. You were going to say something else. Oh, just that I think that David's response, you know, shows his humbleness. And I think God yeah. really appreciates, you know, I think that's the part about David that God really, he, you know, God really <coughs> likes when we're humble and we know our place in the, you know, in the hierarchy, <laughs> you know, because God is God and he's so big and so great. And I think David is really realizing it right here and he's like expressing like, how great are you, God, that you are even letting my family like continue and like I'm not worthy of what you just, you know. Let me do. I, I don't think you can you can over uh, explain the fact that David was in fact a humble man. And, and and when we kind of look at this, you know, you could even look at the president of the United States or whatever today and say, how hard is it for that kind of person to be humble? How hard is it? You have all the power in the world, and yet David is still humble. I totally a hundred percent agree with this, Laura that it shows his character that even when he could have done anything he wanted, I mean, he was the most powerful man that had ever ruled the Israelites at that period. Even, even now, he's the most powerful man that's ever ruled. He could have been a tyrant. Instead, he goes to God with his humility and says, that's all good, bro. I get it. And he doesn't say like, but I really wanted to do the temple. Like he doesn't yep. whine about it or say, yep. I don't understand yep. or whatever. He just is like, 
wow, how am I, who am I that you're letting me do this? Like, I can't believe it. You're imperfect. You go to God. God tells you what the real answer is. You deal with it. You move on. That's what David did. And then he goes, he's got all this amazing about God. And there's no buts about, but you just killed Uzzah because, you know, come on, you know. I mean, it was just, I, I don't know that I've ever read that passage right there. Okay. It's overwhelming to me that he could just, I mean, he just remembered good after good after good after good after good after good after good. He didn't say any, like, but. Yeah. He did this, but he did that. Because I can certainly throw the buts in there. You didn't take care of me in this place. or. You can see uh, God answering his prayers too. If you go back to Psalms one and two, and David's praying, you know, um, to take care of his enemies, and you look at uh, verse eleven, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just God was glad that David had it in his heart to build one, though. Mm-hmm. And David didn't get all a lot of the materials to build it mm-hmm. that that Solomon would need. Yeah, and again, I, I think the focus here, we've got to be careful what, what we're talking about. The focus here is David wants to build a magnificent structure to honor God, and God is saying that's not the point. God is saying, I want you to be that structure. Now, we can look at that and say, as a New Testament Christian, who is the temple today that has been built to house the Spirit of God? The church. The church, look in the mirror. You're looking right at it. You are the temple, the magnificent house that God has built. And I, as I could be completely wrong about this. I interpret 2 Samuel 7 as God saying, here is a glimmer of the future. Physical houses don't matter. Magnificent temples don't matter. Even Jesus rails about this. He's like, that temple sucks. Knock it down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And what was he talking about? He was talking about the body, the physical body. You are the temple. No longer will God reside on a footstool of gold and acacia wood. He'll reside within you. And that is a magnificent thing. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? So then I'll ask you, as kind of our final thing today as we wrap up, how can you honor God through your temple? Sharing his word. Okay, share his word. What else? Living in. I feel like I could do, I feel like God always deserves more praise. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he deserves so much more attention than what we give him. Yeah. And, you know, Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. Mm-hmm. And just continue to do that. Just every day, <laughs> seek him, ask him knock down the door and he said he's going to answer you you're going to find it and he's going to open that door so that's and then go out and tell the world about him go in all the nations be careful what you put into it don't just put junk into the temple whether that's what you eat or what you you know the donut you have on Sunday morning I love the jelly yeah (laughs) Love this. Or Serve. you know what you put in your head. Yep. Yeah. Serve. <coughs> I, Tuesday, Tuesday, I went over to Hepa and just helped deliver groceries. Nice. Because I had time. Mm-hmm. And you know I got to go in. Lorna's sitting there and got to see Lorna and hug her outside of here. I love it. Different place. Mm-hmm. I mean I walked out of there with this 
like so I, so my sometime today I'm gonna put out on Facebook what has been your favorite gift that you've given mm. this year mm. because we all want to receive 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 yep and the more <clears throat> the more I give and the more I serve and the more I you know kind of at that age where I've recognized that that's better you mm -hmm. know it's just serve doesn't matter what it, you know what it is how how weird would it have been in the 10th century BC to say how does the temple serve you that literally would mean nothing to an Israelite you'd be like what do you mean how does the temple serve me I serve the temple I serve God, I go to the temple, I give them money, I bring my sacrifices, we burn incense, we keep it clean for a while. Um, the idea of the temple serving you was completely foreign to those people. I believe, again, completely wrong about this, the reason that God made the tabernacle, the tent that was mobile, was to illustrate the fact that God's temple should be mobile. It should be able to move. This is the first indication that the physical temple is not going to always exist. Jesus destroyed the temple. Well, in a sense, he led to the destruction of the physical temple. It was never rebuilt. After 70 AD, the, the physical temple in Jerusalem was never rebuilt. Its uh, mosque sits on its top right now where it used to be. You're the physical temple. Now you can ask yourselves, how can I serve? How can the temple serve others? Now it makes a lot more sense. It's, it's different. I think it's the pros prosperity gospel that yeah. we uh, still, we're still attracted. I'm yep. still attracted to that. Like, yep. ooh, you know, if I do this, I'm going to get, mm -hmm. get, get, get. And at the same time, it's, it's proving it's not fruitless, but it's, mm. it's not right. You yeah. know, it's not. Pure. What can I get out of it? Yeah. 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 All that stuff. It, it's temporary. I think the only you get, you do realize that, like, at Christmas, and I'm sitting on the couch just looking at all this stuff. I'm like, it's going to get broken. It's going to get lost. It's going to get thrown away. It's mm -hmm. garbage. And, I, like, kind of like you, the other, um, last week I was able to serve somebody. They had a need, and I served it. And it took me, uh, it took Joel along with me. It took us, oh my goodness, probably five or six hours. I had the greatest time. There's just something about. Um, putting yourself out there as inconvenient as it was I had no idea I was going to be that long I thought it was like going to be an hour and a half two. I even told Joel that it's going to be like maybe an hour and a half two hours and I texted Karen I'm like we're going to a tunnel <laughs> what? <laughs> sorry I had no idea mm -hmm. but at, at first I was really annoyed by that but doing that helping them out getting them back and taking care of everything there was a sense of accomplishment and joy to serve other people in that capacity, just be, just because I didn't get anything out of it, other than I filled a need of a friend. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same yeah. time, for us to give, somebody else has to receive. Yeah. And so sometimes I'm on that receiving end mm -hmm. as well, and so I can't. I can't. Well, what, I need what, to do, what that do you feel of that? Well. Yeah, that's I have a hard time receiving sometimes, but I, I don't need that. And like, no, 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 I, I want to get this to you. Yeah. Because really, if we deny that, we're denying them. Mm -hmm. Their blessing, mm -hmm. their happiness, or joy. So. It, you know, the, we we talk a lot about the, the government's going to save us and going to you know do all this. Six hundred dollars. They're going to do all this stuff. But what if each one of us? Like the, the uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when he gets his bonus check. Yeah, Fruit of the Month Club. Yeah, thanks. I wanted a pool. Yeah. 
But if, if, if each person served one person, problem solved. Yeah. Over. Exactly. I mean, period. Yeah. I agree 100%. That's simple. Yep. I like uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. You ever seen that? You ever watched that? At the very end, I don't want to give it up. I just watched. But he served. He he spent his whole life serving other people, and then when he needed, at the end when he needed something, everybody else came through. And it's like I can't remember what the saying was. Like, you may not be rich in money, but if you have friends, you are very rich. And uh, he he served other people, not expecting anything in return. But when he needed something, when he actually needed something, they all came through for him. So. What a great message. All right, we'll end there. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.